This is the Dennis Miller Option. Your source of opinions, stories, and laughs from comedian and inactivist Dennis Miller and his guy Friday, Christian Blatt. What's up, Hiroshi? Let's light this candle. Ladies and gentlemen, Dennis Miller. Hey, folks. Well, joining us now is Ken Burns. Uh, the, well, listen, uh, the preeminent documentarian and on the Mount Rushmore of current historians. Thank God he's chronicling this thing for the future because I don't know that this is going to be du jour for the uh, the millennials to keep track of the past. So for Ken to do this, he's sort of our Pliny the Elder. Uh, Country Music is currently airing on PBS. You can find the whole series on pbs.org and the PBS app, or I like watching it on TV at night, and uh, uh, I haven't missed one yet. Uh, welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you so much, Pliny the Elder. I'm 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 now a tear is forming in my eye. I hadn't really <laughs> considered that as an accolade, and now I'm uh, I, I I don't know how to engrave that. That's really lovely. Well, let Thank me you. catch that falling tear in my cupped hands and <laughs> spread it out into the diaspora. Because uh, <laughs> listen, I am uh, I, I am not uh, I, I'm not not a country music fan, but I, I am the ultimate neophyte. Made it for you. Wars the yeah, Civil War is the greatest uh, work of art in contemporary culture for me, but I was a Civil War devotee, and I know baseball, too. This one is absolutely brilliant, Ken. I must tell you, I'm taking in a two-hour chunks, and uh, I sit thereafter and mull over how I had a blank spot between the car mirrors on this, to some degree. I, I knew it like a layman. Brilliant work, my friend. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think... The key is in what we quote in the opening of the film. The songwriter Harlan Howard said that country music is three chords and the truth. That's right up front, mm. acknowledging its simplicity, essential simplicity, that doesn't have the sophistication or the complication of classical music. But that other part, the truth, means, means that it's mainlining universal human experiences. Now, we take country music, and because those... It's so hard to deal with two four-letter words, love and loss. You disguise and say, oh, it's just good old boys and pickup trucks and hound dogs and six packs of beer. And it does have a distinguished history covering that. But most of what it is is dealing with those two things, love and loss, and nothing does it better. It's also not the lower 40 of musical forms. It's not isolated. It's not an island nation that you need to have a visa or relaxed immigration rules to get to or come from. It's a mm -hmm. budding the blues. It's a budding jazz. It's a budding rhythm and blues. In fact, with rhythm and blues, it is the parent of rock and roll. It's a budding rock and roll and folk and gospel and pop and hip-hop and, and, and uh, even classical. So it's, it's part of our musical DNA. And I knew I'd have folks who like country music. It's, I made it for somebody who says I didn't really know. And I, I bet you, though, you're realizing that you knew a lot more than yes. you thought. And that right. some of those songs have already insinuated themselves into your heart. And isn't it better to have a story connected to it? It isn't like buying the KTEL offer or the Time Life series. It's suddenly you've got story behind it. When you find out coming up 
why Dolly Parton wrote I Will Always Love You, one of the great songs of all Mm. time, which we know mainly from Whitney Houston's crossover success, stunning crossover success, and I'm not taking anything away from Whitney because her version still raises the hair on the back of my neck. When you learn why she does it, it's a declaration of independence for her in a way. Suddenly, her version will be as good, if not greater, than Whitney's, not taking anything away from Whitney's. And that's mm. where I think story is, is the important thing. We've interwoven all of these songs, the very best of country music, into who made them, how they were made, the circumstances they were made, where they came from. Just good storytelling. Well, let me, let me lay down two uh, concepts here. I, I think anytime anybody pens the song... And has, for me, a, a better voice than Whitney Houston. And Whitney Houston has a incredible voice. I'm talking Dolly Parton's voice when you first glimpse her on Porter Wagner's show. <laughs> it's like yeah. otherworldly. Otherworldly. No one, has been, no one has been given a gift from God like a voice like that. I was talking to a jazz musician, and he said, she's never missed a note, ever, ever. Mm. Ever, which means, you know, you get to have a poor performance, you get to have a bad, she's never missed a note. And that's the first thing. And on top of it, she is in the Mount Rushmore of great singer-songwriters in country music. So she's up there with Hank Williams, with Jimmy Rogers, with Johnny Cash, with, with um, you know, uh, Loretta Lynn, with Merle Haggard, with Chris Christopherson. We're getting a little crowded up on Mount Rushmore, but you got to do judgment, you know, good judgment to all of these people. She's the best. And then she's a phenomenal human being, great businesswoman. I mean, she's the real deal. And this is a story. It's all, it's about race. It's about women. It's about creativity. It's about the emotions that you and I are talking about. But it's also about people rising up from unbelievable stultifying poverty to do something. So it isn't just depression era. There's lots there. Mm-hmm. But it's before the Depression and, and even afterwards. So Dolly Parton is born in a dirt poor East Tennessee holler in which she has no running water, no indoor plumbing, and no electricity. And the doctor who comes into that holler to deliver her is paid by her father with a sack of cornmeal. Now, that's mm. Dolly. She, we think of her as an utterly modern figure, an utterly modern contemporary character. So you begin to realize that a good deal of these songs and what makes them fantastic songs is the friction of having to negotiate, not comfort and convenience, but real life threatening stuff. And she knew what she wanted early and she went for it and she got it as Ralph Emery, the great WSM uh, Grand Ole Opry radio announcer said, you know, she came ready. You know, she knew what she wanted and she came and she took it. Now, some people are anointed by God with talent, and when she steps in front of the camera on his morning oh. show, no warble, uh, no, or well, no. uh, an intended warble, but no quaver, yeah. I should That's say. That's right, exactly. A- and exactly. Uh, and just you, you, and even when they talk to her now, you could see she says, "I knew I had a talent." It's the it's the less uh, it's the very difference between egotism and egocentric. This That's woman right. knew that she had it, right. and uh, but she didn't flash it. And also, I was intrigued that she did come from that holler, but immediately laid down a feminist uh, (laughs) sort of manifesto with Porter. It's sort of interesting that we 
think of, or, or conventional wisdom suggests that country music is some essentially conservative thing. And it is insofar as it spends a good deal of its time and effort conserving, in the best sense of the word, traditional American verities. It's also always pushing the, the boundaries of it. But in fact, when Loretta Lynn in the mid-60s is singing Don't Come Home a-Drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind, the same year that the National Organization for Women is founded and the term women's liberation goes into the lexicon, nobody in rock is singing anything like this. Nobody in folk would mm. dare speak to these things. But right. in country music, you know, the, the hillbillies, no. they're saying what's real. Now, as we say in the film... She's not going to identify with any movement, nor are her growing legion of fans. They just finally realize somebody's speaking for them. And that goes back to the beginning of the film. This is a music about the people who built America, black as well as white, ordinary people who be, have, have suspected all along that this advertised thing of a, play, a level playing field doesn't exist. And the songs that they negotiate about love and loss and just making it through the world are real. And they're speaking to people who feel like their stories aren't being told, as we say in the intro. And that, to me, is a key to why the music's so enduring, why it's so effective, why it's so wildly popular now, is because when you, you just think about Dolly's song, right, the verse is, I will always love you. I will always love you. I will always love you. I mean, the chorus is that. And a knucklehead like you and me, we think, oh, man, I could write a country song. And then you realize you can't. Or, or Hank Williams, the silence of a falling star lights up a purple sky. And as I wonder where you are, I'm so lonesome I could cry. There's nobody on the planet that hasn't experienced that. Or the other side of it, I got a hot rod Ford and a $2 bill, and I know a place right over the hill, mm -hmm. right? I love when you cut to Carlene Carter, and she's always she's a perfect punctuation on the being stupefied by a brilliant, simple lyric. I always yeah. like getting to her because she has that look on her face. She'll recant the lyric, and then she'll just look at the camera and go, and like, she lets huh? it sit for a second. How did I always get goosebumps. Yeah, yeah it, it's exactly right. And me too. I mean, I did. You know, we've talked. We just the last time I talked, I think is the Vietnam film, and I'm thinking, you know. We're never going to touch the depth of the emotion that was present in all the myriad voices across the political spectrum, if you have to say that, but just across the human spectrum of experience on that. And yet this thing is, is hugely emotional and hugely powerful. And I'm having people coming up to me. Mm. I mean, it's been since the Civil War that somebody's come up to my door and knocked on the door and said, wow, we're loving this, and can my yes. daughters take a picture with you? You know, that sort of thing. That just, you know, people stop me in the streets, or they stop me and they say nice things, but the fact that it's got a kind of bedrock American emotionalism. This is well, fittingly, fittingly, it resonates. Uh, and, and I'm telling you, that shot, I love what Winton's bringing to it, Winton Marsalis, yeah, when he talks about how... Uh, that music's upstream uh, time-wise from the culture adjusting. Yep. You see people turning people away at luncheonettes and then went and says, but music, and they show these two uh, one looks very modern, this black cat, and there's another black cat who looks like a almost like a jazz blues Delta yep. man. And then they pull the shot wider, and there's just a little local urchin, white urchin, uh, sitting next to him. Yep. Goosebump, Bill. And he uh, says, art tells the tale of us coming together. And yeah. that's, I think, the point of not just this series 
And I don't mean point because that gives us the idea that we start off with some agenda. We just tell stories. And then after mm-hmm. the fact, we look up and see, oh, that's rhyming in the present in this way or, or not. Um, yeah. Or I see that it's doing this. But, Dennis, I've had the privilege all of my professional life, now more than 40 years, to operate, to make films about the U.S., capital U, capital S. But I also, by default, make films about the lowercase plural pronoun version of that, us. So all of the intimacy of us and also we Mm -hmm. and our, with all the majesty and the breadth and the complexity and the contradiction and even the controversy of the U.S. And it's a wonderful space to have, it's a privileged space to have been able to spend 40 plus years sort of, you know, plowing my little acreage and saying, here are the stories that come up to me. They're all the same, right? I mean, it, it basically the subject is different, but the, but the guts of it are us and the U.S. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I do. And what I understood doing country music as you watch, as you look at a photograph like that, where I'm saying, just pan over, just pan over. Let's see that little kid. Don't show him in the beginning. Let's just move mm-hmm. over to that little kid. We're all together. Is that there's only us. There's no them. We live in a binary media and computer culture, which has to establish opposites. It's got to be red state or blue state. It's got to be young or old, gay or straight, rich or poor, male or female, east or west, north or south. Mm-hmm. It's all wonderful convenience. But... Our own DNA shows that we are 99.99% exactly the same. And a few little things are different, and yet we waste so much energy making the them them rather than understanding they're a facet of us. You know, you look at the early pioneers of country music, Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. They don't sound anything alike. And they themselves are an admixture of lots of different forces, Delta Blues, an African-American song catcher who went out with A.P. Carter, the railroad crews, the mostly black railroad crews that Jimmy Rogers heard in the Deep South as they're laying track, plus their own overlay of yodels and uh, country old hillbilly stuff, as, as they would call it. Um, and, and Jimmy Rogers most definitely represents Saturday night to the Carter's Sunday morning, right? He's the scamp. He's the rogue. He's the habitué of, of the bars. Uh, and the Carter family is about family, mother, home, whatever it is. But in point of fact, as you dig into the stories, you find moments of Jimmy Rogers' artistry, which is speaking to universal human, almost spiritual aspirations. And speaking yes. to the people who are suffering as he is to TB, uh, with TB, then the number one killer in the United States. And Muggers. the Carter family is having their own kind of patent place of marital mm-hmm. problems and, and affairs and, 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 and leavings and, and complications. So you begin to realize, you know, as Pogo said in that 1940s comic strip, he said, we have met the enemy and he is us. And I just like to graduate that. I, there's no enemy. It's just us, and we're super complicated. And if we try to reduce it to a kind of sanitized Madison Avenue version of ourselves, we don't serve anybody very well. And when we do serve the us part of the U.S., then we have a chance to have a conversation. And to me, country music's just a part of a conversation. The novelist Richard Powers said, the best arguments in the world won't change a single person's mind. The only thing that can do that is a good story. So we're just rooting around for good stories. A conversation with the melody, indeed. We're talking to Ken Burns, his latest documentary, Country Music, 
currently airing on PBS. You can find the whole series on PBS.org and the PBS app. Listen, I have a message for our listeners that are 50 and over, and I don't mean pounds. <laughs> Retirement is around the corner. Wouldn't you like to get up to 33% more from yours? And I don't mean years. There's a free book called Annuity Do's and Don'ts for Baby Boomers. It's from a annuity general, a leading financial firm on how to maximize your income in retirement. It contains little-known truths about annuities told in simple-to-understand terms that can help everyone make the right choices before buying an annuity. And like I said, it's free. So you should call 800-619-8892 now. If you do, Annuity General will throw in a free annuity rate report as well. The free rate report summarizes rates and benefits from financially strong insurers. So take advantage of getting both free books while you can. Call Annuity General at 800-619-8892 to get annuity do's and don'ts for baby boomers and the annuity rate report, both free right now. That's 800 800- 619-8892-800-619-8892. Um, I watched, uh, yes, I, I had seen episodes two, three, and then last night I watched that one uh, live. So two, three, four, and five. I had not seen one, and I watched it during the afternoon yesterday. And I was uh, enamored of the fact that the if they think of country music as a vessel, it comes here from divergent seas, and it comes here with two paddles, one the fiddle from England and one the banjo from Africa. Well said, right? my friend. Well said. That's exactly right. And who would have thunk that the two main in, uh, instruments of country music, the fiddle and the banjo, one comes from the, from the British Isles in Europe and the other comes from Africa. And that's, in fact, what the mixture of influences are within country music, whatever genre you're in, whether it's the Jimmy Rogers or the Carter families. Uh, um, Hank Williams had uh, Rufus Titot Payne, who is an itinerant uh, street musician, who taught him, this is Williams now, he said, I got all the musical education I needed from him. Bill Monroe, the father of bluegrass, um, said, you know, had a, his uncle Penn was a mentor, but so was Arnold Schultz, a gifted African-American violinist. And Johnny Cash meets Gus Cannon on the streets of Memphis, where this explosion is about to take place between gospel and rhythm and blues and so-called hillbilly music, which is going to produce what they initially call rockability and is going to grow up into what we now know as rock and roll, which you may have heard of. Is that indeed a picture that I saw in Memphis? It was a brief glimpse, and I... I know I clocked Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Elvis Presley. Is the fourth guy Carl Perkins? Are they Carl Perkins, at a, yeah. Well, are no, they all at a piano uh, pre-fame? Jerry Lee isn't in it. Carl is, and, and Johnny, and Elvis. And we got, oh, I mean, you, know, you go to the, 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 the Cash family, you say, got home movies? And you go, yeah, we used to watch them when we were kids. I think they're in here. So you print them out, and there's a beautiful picnic. Everybody focuses only on his love affair with June Carter, but it's really better to hear not just about the love affair with June Carter, but his original love with Vivian Libretto, the woman he married and who gave him his, 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 his daughters. He'll eventually have a son with June. Uh, but then you see their home movies and how in love they are. And then you'll see them fooling around on the road, the Tennessee Two, uh, Marshall and Luther and, uh, and Johnny. And then you see fooling around with Elvis. And then you see them fooling around with Carl Perkins. And they're at a diner and they're eating French fries. And Carl Perkins is bonding with Johnny Cash because they're both <laughs> comparing the fact that they have um, scars on their hands from picking cotton as little kids. 
Yes. I view, uh, I view Johnny Cash in much the same way people say, boy, how does a man turn on himself to that degree? Because he's brilliant and he's uh, obviously a spiritual guy. But I, I remember reading this about Spencer Tracy once that he uh, and his wife had had a, a deaf child and then he began to follow. He began to not walk the line. And I think yes, John that's Cash exactly right. Singing, I walk the line. And then being that was the for Vivian to reassure her, yeah. her great fear, as every um, married spouse back at home fears, is that the, the well-known temptations of the road would befall him. And he would call every night and say, no, no, no. And he would sing, I walk the line for her. But in fact, he had fallen in love with June Carter, and more importantly, I think, to your point, he also fell in love with the drugs that kept mm-hmm. him going and able to do that. And it was June's demand that he clean himself up that led to his, you know, crucible moment where he comes mostly clean and then goes to Folsom Prison and at the end of the 60s comes out with that triumphant hit in 68. And then he becomes the poly. He is if he hasn't already been the polymath of country music because mm-hmm. of his omnivorous curiosity about everything musical. So he gets a TV show after that, a nationally broadcast TV show, and he brings on James Taylor and Odetta. And the network guy says, you can't bring on Pete Seeger. He's a lefty. He brings on Pete Seeger. He wants to sing Sunday Morning Coming Down by Chris Christopherson because he thinks... I should have written that. And one line is, uh, uh, just wishing God that I were stoned. The network says, you can't say that. And he goes, okay, okay. And then he gets to it, I wish in God you're stoned. He puts on Louis Armstrong, who mm-hmm. had played with Jimmy Rogers back in the 20s. Now it's like the eve of the 70s. Uh, it, it's just, he's just amazing. He brings on Bob Dylan. No, Bob Dylan never went on TV, let alone live TV. And there he is singing Girl from North Country with uh, Johnny Cash. It's just. It's like and four amazing. degrees of separation. Forget six. I mean, exactly. the whole, the whole weave gives you goosebumps to, to think all that, uh, that yeah, we're Louis Armstrong, in essence, the Jimmy Rogers of jazz, right? Oh, uh, you know, that's sort exactly of, right. That's exactly right. And that's what the guy who recorded them, Ralph Pierce, thought. He said, you know, I can bring by this guy who's doing the best in this subgenre and this guy Louis Armstrong who's doing this in jazz and they'll play Blue Yodel number nine standing on the mm-hmm. corner great blues tune they play it together and then there's Johnny Cash you know taking the part of Jimmy Rogers long dead from tuberculosis um, singing it with Louis Armstrong who's not long from the grave uh, but you just kind of go oh yeah mm-hmm. it's goosebump time you know, that peer gentleman without peer, quite frankly, uh, even to this day, in that uh, a fair deal, uh, yes. a, a kind of key cog, uh, grease the gears. Uh, sure, by sure. in every way, shape or form, going to record race records, meaning rhythm and blues mm-hmm. and the blues, not getting enough. Someone says, well, maybe there's a market for some old hill country music that eventually becomes hillbilly, that eventually becomes country and western, that just eventually becomes country. And some today would say is now Americana and Ruth. Um, but uh, he records in uh, Bristol, Tennessee in, this, in August of 27. On August 1st, the Carter family. On August 4th, Jimmy Rogers, which is lightning striking <laughs> twice, the two polarities of it, and then has the foresight to, you know, have Louis Armstrong come in in Hollywood and, and record. I mean, it's just amazing. He got it. And, and country music is born when you marry this music that heretofore had been on porches, or on yes. barn dances, or sung at church, and suddenly you've got a thing called a phonograph, which means you can preserve it forever, but more importantly, you've got a new, new thing 
phonograph's been around for a while, a new, new thing called radio, which means that you can send it out. Now, my friend, you probably already know this, but if you look in 1910 in your dictionary under the word broadcast, it means a farmer working his way down a furrow with a bag of seeds, and he is (laughs) systematically strewing the seeds, broadcasting them out into this uh, freshly plowed field broadcasting. Then you wait 20 years, 1930, that's now the secondary definition. Broadcasting means the broad, from one person again, uh, from one place, one signal, mm-hmm. you are broadcasting everywhere this idea. And if, you're, if that is now 1930 and the depression is just overtaking you and your loved ones, that's one way to abolish loneliness. You don't have to buy mm-hmm. a record. You can't afford it. But if you've got a radio, you can yes. hear for free the things that are going to connect you together, whether it's a fireside chat from your president or whether it's the music of Jimmy Rogers or this new music incubating in the dance halls of Harlem called Swing, Mm, you know, whatever it's going to be, it's going to stitch us together and it's going to make it possible for people to work together through the Depression so that they can work even harder together to get through the Second World War. Even Dolly, way out, and other people like Dolly, way out in places where there's no electricity, I was so heartened that the fathers would work hard and go get a battery-powered radio. Exactly. And her thing is, she said, and I remember going out and putting the water on the ground wire, Hmm. and it would would whistle in and out, but that's where we'd hear the Grand Ole Opry. You know, he just, he just looked and he Jeez. goes, this is Dolly Parton, who, who very movingly in our film says, look, I, I, I modeled my looks on the, on the town trollop. She says trollop, which is a great euphemistic great word. word. And what she means is she comes in from the holler to go to town, the big town, which is mm. Vereville, and there's the woman of ill repute. But to her, this little girl, she looks so beautiful. beautiful. And she wants to be like her, painted and big hair and big boobs and whatever that is. She <laughs> wants that. And But the fact that you could take some icon like Dolly Parton, who is free to admit that sort of stuff, it, it just is yeah. so refreshing to find somebody so honest and so direct. Yes, I, mala, I modeled my looks after the town trollop. I thought she was beautiful, and that's the way I wanted to look. Yeah, because when you see Dolly in her high school photo, she looks like Scout from Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird. Almost. Exactly. She's got that exactly. sort of cut. And they uh, they see the the city girls with their color and their, their amplitude, all that. And, of course, yep. to a young girl that would look like that. We're talking to uh, Ken Burns and uh, the documentary. You can tell I'm uh, completely involved in it. I mean, literally, I'm anticipating tonight's episode because I, I believe we'll run into Waylon and Willie, all those cats tonight. It's currently airing on PBS. You can find the whole series at pbs.org and the PBS app. I want to isolate on a couple other of the people that I love so far uh, just listening to. Um, first off, when Dwight Yoken talks about Merle's song, about yeah. the, the wife leaving... Uh, Holding things together, yeah. What a wipeout in that So photo. here I am. Oh, I'm, in, I'm in the Capitol Records, you know, Hollywood and Vine, Capitol Records mm-hmm. Studios, um, in the studio where Buck and the Maddox Brothers and Rose and Merle mm-hmm. and Dwight have all recorded. The Bakersfield guys. The Bakersfield guys, the people holding down. You know, we're not going soft and syrupy the way the mm-hmm. Nashville sound, which is in the 1950s, is desperate to have some crossover success because rock and roll is really sending country down. And so they're having, you know, and let's not, we don't have to make the other wrong here. 
Crazy, written by Willie Nelson, sung by Patsy Cline, is the number one jukebox tune of all times, and that's most definitely a, uh, a, a Nashville sound. But there are folks out there saying, no, we have a twang, and we're proud of this twang, and this is real, and this is how we're going to do it, and we're not going to bring in strings to replace our fiddles, and we're not going to have backup choruses to replace our nasal harmonies. This is who we are. And so they come out. So Dwight is a wonderful person who understands this, loves Buck. Buck sort of thought he was like his own son. And he's trying to resurrect the importance of Merle Haggard and connects it to his oaky past, you know, when his father had arrived there. And then they were denigrated as being shiftless, lazy, no-account workers when, in fact, they were the hardest workers, just desperate for a chance to get a job, as then later uh, uh, waves of brown people in the Central Valley would also experience the sting of that dispossession, if you will. And, and he's done this marvelous job. He says, but my favorite song is holding things together. And he starts off that sentence fully, you know, prepared to do it. And he starts singing it. And then he can't go any further because he realizes it's right to the bone. And it's right. like so many moments in the film, he just stops. It's like a 12-second pause. You know, my friend, what a 12-second pause is. It's like there we're just waiting we're not judging we're just waiting for um no. for dwight to catch up and he just looks up and he says merle's good and then he doesn't sing but he speaks the sort of killer verse that kind of arrows yeah. right to your heart and then you realize it's not just merle he said that's all you need to know about merle but it's also Dwight, and you realize that this is a family story, an American family story, which is being handed down generation to generation. Dolly, in another part of it, calls it an heirloom, you know, songs and experiences and truths. At the very beginning of the film, Merle says, it's about things that we believe in and can't see, like songs and dreams and souls. And I just go... Okay, I know. That's it. We can just stop there. That's what it is. It's about things that we believe in but can't see. And that's what it's echoing Winton who says, you know, music's the art of the invisible, the only art form we don't see. And it works on us that much faster because we don't see it. We don't see it coming up. We don't see it grabbing hold of our, 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 you know, our stomach or our, our hearts or our minds. And it doesn't – we just – don't appreciate how powerful a force it is. And country music is just one delivery vehicle for bringing the three chords and the yes. truth right to you. Um, when you see Merle Haggard, folks, uh, and believe me, he has a visitation from a, almost an angel in the Johnny Cash yeah. plays the cue, and he gets it that he has to get it together. He gets straight two and a half years later. He's out. He becomes an important, important player in this whole thing. And when you see him when he's young, he's almost Conway Birdie. Or was yeah. that the character's name? Yeah. Bye Bye Birdie, yeah. handsome. Yeah. And then yeah. as an older yeah, like, man, he's a vuncular. Like yeah. Yeah. And you see a life lived. Eventually, when you need looks when you're young because the world doesn't know you, you need wisdom when you're old, and you've traveled the trail because you look at Merle now and you think, boy, there is a life lived right there, you, you, the whole gamut. You and I are in total sync on this, brother, because whenever he come on in the editing room, I just yell, Zeus. Like every time he came on, whether he wanted you to understand how important Jimmy Rogers is or the Maddox Brothers and Rose or comment on Bob Will and his Texas Playboys, the Western Swing, or whether he's talking about his own experience or whether he's just commenting, he's like almost to tears himself talking about one of the yes. songs he wrote today, I Started Loving You Again. He is Zeus. He is, there's no 
there's no thunderbolt of anger or what of retribution. It's just you have, as you say, the wisdom. You see all the miles on his tires. You see mm-hmm. what he's been through. And the fact that this Hollywood handsome guy, as Ralph Emery calls him, uh, the radio disc jockey from Nashville, it doesn't need to put that on anymore. It doesn't have to be. He yeah. doesn't have to. He's as pretty as Warren Beatty when he comes up. And, and now he's just himself. And he, oh, you know, he's got, the, he's he got said. the oaky hat, and he's got the whiskers, and yeah. he looks, and he swallows hard. He sometimes a tear comes in his eye, or he's he says, "Oh, he is as serious as a heart attack," you know. Yeah, or you're talking about the Maddox brothers and Rose. He goes, "Sometimes you go to a place and you think, why did I come here?' But whenever you saw the Maddox brothers and Rose, you knew you had come to the right place." Yeah, yeah, you'd been summoned like the monolith or something in 2001. Yeah, exactly, exactly. There, there were resonances out in the force, and people <laughs> went to them. Uh, we're talking to Ken Burns. His 16-hour uh, work, well, like I said, how, how many times Ken comes out of the box almost for me with Civil War, and that's my bailiwick. That's what I love to read about, and I'm thinking, how does this guy, it's like, uh, you know, uh, Buzz Aldrin coming back from the moon and selling the Yatsus in Tempe. Where the fuck do you go after you do that first? <laughs> but uh, he answers the call every time, and I am completely immersed, as you will be, in country music. It's currently airing on PBS. You can find the whole series on PBS.org and the PBS app. Whether you're an athlete, weekend warrior, or someone who deals with constant joint pain, back pain, muscle soreness, or arthritis, finding a natural remedy that instantly works might seem non-existent. Most over-the-counter painkillers, such as Icy Hot and Ben Gay, only focus on one basic cooling effect, such as menthol, which temporarily takes your mind off the pain until that pain returns in around an hour or so. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle and joint pain immediately, while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try the natural breakthrough pain relief solution. CryoFreeze CBD, developed by Omax Health. Got mine in the mail the other day. This non-prescription, triple-action pain relief roll-on is specially formulated to block pain receptors, reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. The best part is this 100% natural CBD-powered remedy works its magic within 10 minutes of application, and relief lasts up to 8 hours, much longer than the -the over-the-counter products. It's super easy to throw in your gym bag, take on the go for emergency pain relief. Simply roll it over where it hurts, ice out the pain with an arctic blast. (laughs) <laughs> Omax Health is offering my listeners 20% off a full bottle of CryoFreeze pain relief roll-on, plus free shipping. This discount also applies towards any product site-wide. Just go to Omax, O-M-A-X, health.com today and enter code MILLER to take advantage of this incredible savings. That's O-M-A-X, health.com, enter code MILLER to get 20% off CryoFreeze and anything else site-wide and lastly in closing i just wanted to say uh ken thank you for your time and uh, i'm so enjoying uh marty stewart boy what a, what a, he's like zealot oh. right 
he, he yeah, but all, a dandy, authentic. You know, like he's he he completely. he's dressed as a dandy, but boy, when he pulls out his little is it a mandolin and starts yeah. jamming or talking, yeah. and is that in fact true that he ends up marrying that woman twenty five yeah. years yeah. later? He does. You'll, you'll, there's another time <laughs> you'll hear that story. But he goes, you know, he goes to the Choctaw Indian Fairgrounds where Connie Smith, whose record adorns his record yes. player, Miss Listen Smith to goes to Washington and he thinks she's the prettiest girl ever. And he gets a couple of snapshots. We got him. And then he says yes. to his mama and his sister on the way home, I'm going to marry her someday. And 25 years later, he does. And I've been out to dinner at <laughs> Marty and Connie's house and they are married. And Connie is, I mean, Marty's the luckiest guy on earth because Connie is one of the greatest human beings on earth. Great damn, yeah. It, it's just, it's it's one of those great, unbelievable stories that if you went to Hollywood with it, they'd say, get out of here. That could never happen. <laughs> yeah. And the way he reveals it in his Elfin Delight is so oh, sweet, where he goes, and 25 years later, and then he kind of looks at I did. I did. Ma- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that gave me goosebumps. Yes. Ken, it's a, it's a great piece of work. And one last thing, uh, I, this will show you the vagaries of music and where the world takes you, folks. Honest to God, as I watched, I was thinking, uh, Certainly, the 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 beautiful lament in Ken's Civil War, the the, the musical title, Shokin Farewell, yeah. puts it all together. Ashikan Farewell. I was thinking, well, this will show up in here somewhere, no doubt. And when it didn't, I had to go research. It was written by a professor at SUNY, upstate New York, or something. Yeah. He was one of my session room musicians, Jay Unger, uh, and I had him in the early films like Brooklyn Bridge and The Shakers, and and uh, he ran a music camp, still does, called the Ashokan uh, Music Festival, and it was. Oh. Breaking up one August, and this Jewish boy from the Bronx sits down in like 15 minutes, (laughs) pulls out one of the greatest Scotch-Irish laments ever. And when I heard it, I said, wow, I'm I'm normally faithful entirely to the period music, but here's my bridge back to the Civil War period, because it's as pure a Civil War tune as any of the things like, uh, you know, when Johnny comes marching home or you know, uh, the battle hymn of the Republic or the battle cry of freedom, whatever it is. And it was, and it, it just works. It's a beautiful piece of music and is a beautiful piece of folk music, uh, as well. Yeah. Well, folks, when you think about that moment where they played that music in civil war and they read that letter from that man who died the next day or in the next week, and you think about him saying, I'll be the, the soft breath on your face or the, you see so many moments like that between men and women in here. There's a beautiful songwriting couple that stays together. I think oh, worldwide ends up selling Felice 900 and, million. Yep, Police and Boodle. And the way he looks at his best gal, even after the, the the biggest players in that industry, that look where she's on the car, I think, boy, they're still at the malt shop. They're still yep. in love. It's beautiful. Exactly right. And the son says it so well. She had all the, the ambition and the drive. He said she was in love with this process. And she loved that more than anything else and and my father loved her more than anything else i always get caught up at that moment just this idea (laughs) you know it's too much because we live in such a complicated world and then we unnecessarily further complicate it when in fact it's pretty direct do you love me yes i'm so happy do you love me not anymore i'm so lonesome i could cry unbelievable there it is kent Great to talk to you, Goosebumps. Can't wait for tonight. Yep. You are uh, you're an American historian of unmatched renown, my friend. Now, what you're leaving for the future, God bless you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you. All right, later, Gator. Wrong number. <laughs> 
give it a watch. I know I'm usually a prick, but this this is soft. No, it's great. It's soft for me. I watched the. Uh, I've only seen the first one so far, but uh, you know, it's always. Don't try to make your appreciation of it more than mine, no, and thus eat into my validity as a heartfelt human being. It's clearly less. <laughs> I've only seen. All right, one. there, there. You've seen many more than I have. I only appreciate two hours of it. But like this, this oh, so that Jimmy Rogers guy that I, I didn't know anything about, and he's like he's like the first like superstar in American Hendrix. history. Yeah, and it's like he oh he he recorded a hundred songs, and his career lasted five years. He died at thirty five. Yeah, they from, show pictures of him. He looks like Karloff yeah, from tuberculosis. And like my wife was watching something else, and all she hears is and there were flux of flecks of blood on his handkerchief and he drowned on his own blood she's like what the hell is this it's such a like grim no. story that you know what was that yeah, they thought it was a behind the music about yeah. keith moon or something <laughs> right well that that would have had a little bit more carousing at night but uh yeah so it's uh i don't know i think it's great that uh I, like like you were saying country music it's it's not you know i know some country music songs but it's not what i listen to but it's so fascinating yeah he can apply his uh process to almost any subject including hardware stores and it would end up being interesting can i say one thing in closing here folks Jimmy Smith runs fucking Bluff City. <laughs> uh, watching Dolly in in the show, it reminded me. I don't know if you remember when she was on Salvador Dolly Parton. Wait a wait second. A minute. Wait a second. Streaming what? show. And I will always love melting watch faces. <laughs> Uh, just the way she was talking about her upbringing reminded me of, uh, of a sketch she did when she hosted us and yeah. when you were on, she was telling a, a story about like, Oh, we didn't have TV. I was in mom. that. Yeah. You're, it's like a rare sketch you were in and she tells all these stories that her mom told. And it's like, you realize like, Oh, that's Bonanza and Dragnet. And Oh, and my favorite were these funny stories about a redheaded girl who was always trying to get on the stage at the Copa. You yeah. Know? Her mom's <laughs> stories were all about we're all TV, TV shows. They must've yeah. been watching somewhere. <laughs> Um, Lindsay, can you shut that door? Sure can. It's a little hot in here, isn't it? It's, turn the AC down. Yeah, let's do that. What do you want to do for the rest well, of the say? Well, we only have a few more minutes here, and uh, I think uh, I know uh, Dennis Stemplinski back in Culver City can play some uh, voicemails for you. I hear the stamp coming, <laughs> rolling around the bend. Imagine Johnny Cash going into San Quentin and singing to the things and uh, the, all the convicts. 3,000 of them. They're not chained to anything, yeah. but uh, all the cops are up above in the rafters with machine guns pointed at them. And Cash gets to the part where he oh. says, I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Like, and it's like an applause <laughs> line. Yeah. All these hard asses who are in for life. Yeah. It's, oh, <laughs> it's like the opening notes of Born to Run. Like, yeah. Oh, we've done oh man. They have pictures of Johnny in there when he was at the bottom of the pill barrel. And oh, he boy. must weigh. He looks like Frank Gorshin. You, oh, you expect no. him to be in a lime green question mark suit. He's so dead. <laughs> Uh, who else turns up in that? There was a fourth guy in that photo about the piano. I mistook him for uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, and I'm trying to think who it was now. And it very well might have been a young Willie Nelson, oh, who's wow. almost corporate when you yeah, see him. Yeah, when you him. see him without the beard, yeah. without the braids. yeah, Without the pot. Well, <laughs> I, I think Willie got into pot early, but uh, yeah. I don't know if he got in as early as Bob Mitchum on the Champs-Élysées, which was like immediately après World War II. Right. Mitchum gets popped for pot. Uh so we're going to join on the Champs-Élysées. And uh, today, uh, if that happened, uh, he'd be Muslim. Uh, 
Okay. <laughs> oh, no, they don't smoke pot. Maybe no. they should. It could help. Lighten up a little. All right, let's uh, go with a voicemail that we, we've had staring at me for a while. Lindsay, what, what are you doing? Don't take too much of those because my stomach sticks out and I have to suck <laughs> it in and I can't even vaguely concentrate on the she, show. She zoomed in only on your stomach. That's all right, right? It's just your stomach talking. Jesus Christ. <laughs> uh, voicemail number four would be from Jen. <gasps> That's limpet. That's a good one. Das Limpet. I wish people in the audience could see you. (laughs) I'm doing the. uh, uh, What did? How did that turn out? Uh, They hung a uh, the German U-boats or the boats hung a microphone over the side, and Don Knotts had become the cartoon fish, Mr. Limpet. He would come up and blow into the mic. Yeah. (laughs) And the Germans would go Das Limpet. That's when you learned that Das was a. you know, as a kid, that was the first German you learned because it was a, a Das Limpet, and then you'd go and you'd watch Johnny Weissmiller film where at the end, uh, Cheetah grabs the Nazis' ham, ham radio and steers the plane into the escarpment wall. <laughs> and uh, you, you hear the Nazi go, uh, you hear, <laughs> Cheetah laughing, and then, what, what is that? Das Cheetah! <laughs> anyway, Das. Das. Uh, so Das voicemail for Jeb Der Illinois. You were talking about awkward actor moments. And to me, the biggest one is Edward G. Robinson in The Ten Commandments when he says to Charleston Heston, Say, Moses, what do you think you're doing? Thank you. Enjoy your podcast. <laughs> Where's your Jesus now? <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty unwieldy. And it's funny that he's known for that because what a deft, eloquent, uh, delicate, I'd say, actor. I know people are going to say, what do you mean, Edward G. Robinson? But, God, so much of his work. I think there's something called Scarlet Street where he falls for a beautiful woman. It was one of those two sisters. I think they had a third sister, but I can't remember. But uh, she turns out to be a creep. And he's so shattered the, the way he falls for her. And the way she leads him on, and the way she's so uh, fucking the bad guy behind his back, and uh, when he finds that, he's so shattered. So, a very uh, exquisite actor, Edward G. Robinson. But yes, you're right; he's known. <laughs> Who was it? Was it Norm McDonald once told me that he liked Keanu Reeves? But he said uh, he's always he always plays a part where he's uh, a character who lives in a valley near Transylvania. <laughs> Yeah, it's always the same sort of uh, vampire. Dead von Helsing, Lucy von Helsing's the undead dude. <laughs> that's such a, a normal valley yeah. near the central site. Well, we're near the end right now. Thanks, folks. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Dennis Miller Option exclusively on Westwood One. Tune in to new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday on the Westwood One app, westwoodone.com, and on Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate, review, and share. Until next time, that's the show, and we are out of here.